Hi everyone, my name is Christopher Vonheim and you're listening to the BIN podcast. Simply the podcast for those who want to learn from the very best in business, tech and entrepreneurship. Let's start the show. Yanis Alafusus is a Greek businessman and a ship owner. He began his career in shipping in 1981 and has over 40 years of experience in all facets of the industry. In this episode, we discuss why Yanis found a passion in shipping, how he makes good business decisions, the collapse of the Greece economy, and his best advice for future entrepreneurs and company builders. Let's start the episode. Okay, everyone, welcome back. Super happy to have Yanis joining the show. Thank you so much for taking the time. My pleasure. Thank you. How are life? How is life in Athens and Greece today? We just talked about COVID. Can you give a snapshot into the situation? You were all wearing masks in the start here. We're wearing masks in the in the office. I've t- taken mine off for the interview, um, and uh, for the podcast. Well, let's put it this way: on Sunday, a lot of us were swimming still. Today's a little bit grey, but still warm. COVID is unfortunately getting worse. So um, we have uh, the government, as of today, has shut down all restaurants and bars. And uh, there's a curfew between midnight and five in the morning. Uh, Obligatory 50% uh, working from home, at least. Um, And mask wearing inside and outside everywhere, unless you are, you know, exercising or walking on your own outside. Uh, but if you are in a city with other people on the pavement or anything, everybody has to wear masks. What gives so, you what gives you more stress in life? Uh, owning Panathinaikos or running a shipping company which is family owned? Of course, owning Panathinaikos, unfortunately, yes. Which was an accident. Whilst owning Panathinaikos was an accident, uh, my shipping site was not an accident. I chose it. Can you quickly just use two minutes because there's so many that love football and sports. Can you explain the quotes I read today that you said, this is not fixable, so I just have to leave Panathinaikos? The problems are so deeply rooted that I can't fix it even if I tried? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, after, unfortunately, in the last, not, in the last few, two or three years, it's been getting better. But uh, let's say for the last 15, 20 years, um, we've had uh, a lot of corruption in football in Greece. And um, this has, uh, if, if you look at the stadiums, uh, they were full of uh, supporters back in the late 90s, even early 2000s. But, but, but the last 10 years, the, the stadiums are empty because nobody trusts the results and refereeing was very bad, etc. However, in the last two, three years, a lot of uh, big effort has been made by more or less everybody and things have been improving. So hopefully, hopefully, football will become more manageable in Greece. Just to, to explain, is this because of the betting? industry that people bet on games no. and oh no 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 i think it was well first of all one big issue is champions league um you know for example television rights for the three or four main big greek teams more, more popular greek teams vary i guess between five and ten million euros a year depending on the position and the team uh whilst income from the champions league is like 30 million plus added revenue from tickets plus added revenue from making your players known so you can sell them at a much higher price. So I think that some people were after, uh, they tried to win the championship every year in order to make a lot of money. And and this has happened. And of course, these teams have been much more competitive than other teams. Uh, And this is the problem. And Greece having gone through a big recession, a big crisis, financial crisis, um, um, until, like, I guess, a year ago or so. This has also reduced uh, advertising, sponsors. In general, there's been economic malaise here, which has, of course, reflected on football as well. What's your best time in 100-meter sprint? If I understood my research correctly, you're quite an athlete growing up. I, I wasn't, no, no, I was, no, not that fast. I was 10.9, 10. 10.9 seconds. Was that yeah, the biggest time. hobby, running, or...? 
Do you like football? I, I still run for exercise, but uh, I didn't like running long, long, long distance when I was a sprinter. But as I got older, I guess I have no choice. I don't know if you. Slower. I don't know if you're familiar with the, the founder behind Nike, but he had so many bad times during building the Nike business that he had to run to like run away from the problems. So he like really enjoyed <laughs> long runs. I don't know if you use that in your life as well, or if the business uh, yeah, is more absolutely. solid. Uh, yeah, running has been a big, big companion in stress, stressful times. Can you describe that, your family company uh, just to give maybe the listeners a bit of an insight? Because there are many people that are not familiar with the family story and maybe also how you came to be in that story, yeah, a bigger sure. person. I, my father uh, invested, started investing. He was a civil engineer and he had an engineering construction company. But in the, I guess in the 60s, early 60s, mid 60s, he started investing in small secondhand general cargo ships. Um, and uh, as the day, the, by, by, by the 70s, he was exclusive in shipping with a dry cargo fleet. And until 1984, uh, my family was exclusive in dry cargo. And uh, I, 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 for some reason, I always liked tankers a lot. And uh, I started my own business back in 1983, 84 in tankers. And in fact, uh, um, I, I, I was after a small local contract at the time and uh, because I, uh, I had no knowledge of the tanker market and how to calculate costs in tankers, I asked a Norwegian friend, Axel Lawrenson at the time, to help me out and I came to Oslo and we sat down and he helped me calculate the, you know, the cost per ton um, of, the cargo, of the cargo that was to be lifted uh, for the small contract I was after, and I got that contract. And that's how I started my shipping career with chartering small ships, 20,000 ton product carriers, moving fuel. And that was my first entry into, into tankers. And but after that, uh, you know, dry cargo, after the oil crisis of the late 70s, was in a terrible depression, as were tankers, in fact. Um, and I guess uh, we, there was a big company, Japanese company called Sanko. They had like 300 Aframaxes. They went bankrupt uh, in 84, 85. And uh, at that time, uh, tankers, their price was extremely depressed. To give you an idea, an, an Aframax of 10 years or nine years would cost 3 million or below $2.7 million a ship, which is absolutely ridiculous if you think about uh, uh, how much they cost now, how much they cost when they were built, um, which gave us an opportunity to invest in, in extremely cheap tankers and uh, start uh, the tanker phase of the company. That's, that's how it's, it all started. When you say you don't know why you had that passion, can you identify that moment? I don't think you just suddenly wake up with an interest for it. No, I, thought, you know, dry cargo, I found dry cargo extremely boring, uh, slow, tedious, and with very limited upside in, in dry cargo, of course, uh, there are expert companies who know how to, who have contracts of afraidment and who can combine uh, back holes and front holes, etc., and they can improve the returns. But uh, in most cases, dry cargo, I found dry cargo very boring um, and slow. Whilst tankers, all, I was following tankers and they were much more volatile. And uh, um, if you got your timing right, and if you if you if, if you if you did your, your if you were good at your, what you were doing, you could have very significant results. Um, and this is something uh, outside, I guess, two thousand eight, two thousand seven, when because of China, dry cargo went absolutely irrationally crazy. Um, this has been the case always with tankers and versus dry cargo. So that's. I like I like the speed of tankers. I like the speed. In other words, uh, you know, you have very few cargos, crude oil, fuel oil. Of course, they have some differences, and um, uh, but basically, there's very few cargos, and uh, there's a world scale, which effectively, in theory, uh, equalizes 
um, the returns on a ship, regardless of which round voyage you choose. I mean, from uh, from a specific loading port to any discharge port, ballasting back. In theory, you should be making the same amount, um, which also helps things uh, move much more quickly. And also, in tank, there's much more. There are many more opportunities. To find to do clever things in tankers when you charter them. My, my best uh, period in, in my business career when, when I was actually actively chartering ships. This was the most fascinating part of my career. I regret. I mean, I I, I yearn. Uh, I miss those days. Now I have. Uh, I guess I have a more strategic <coughs> role. Yeah. Can you explain? Uh... Your day when your analysis when your analysis are being um, punched in an Excel sheets. What are you looking for? Is it sort of this like macro stuff, and then you make a strategy, or is it volatile? So you day to day change your strategy based on momentum. How would you describe the way you view the world and your strategic well, positions? Okay, uh, the macro uh, side of things is is extremely important, and this is. Uh, I think you have to base your uh, decisions on if you sell ships, buy ships, uh, um, on the macro information that you have. Um, uh, but outside that, there is a micro universe, a daily universe, which is also extremely important. And in tankers, if you get the right cargoes, if you have the right uh, contacts, if you have good ships that can take it, that any charter will accept or prefer. You have you can really outperform the average earnings of uh, a, a specific type of tanker if you're good at what you're doing. So macro helps you decide what ships you want and when to sell and when to buy. Micro is very important. Also, the daily day-to-day -day business is also extremely important in tankers. And in high performance, in your mind, I guess you need to know the difference and the synergies between those two, and you have to be able to navigate them both correctly, right? You don't, can you just I mean, be a macro guy and just like lean back and relax? Or do you also need to be in the yeah. micro? Yes, yes. The, your returns will be lower, but you certainly can. Uh, I think the most, imp the, the important part uh, for success is not to buy expensive ships and to sell ships at the right time. That's the, the, the most important part. So you can do that and put them on time charter or even put them in a pool or something and not bother with the daily stuff outside deciding when you will sell them. But uh, if you run your business uh, on a day-to-day -day basis as well, uh, aggressively, I think you can improve uh, your results quite dramatically. If people are not into shipping industry, what analogies can you bring? Do you think it's similar the way the airline industry works or do you feel shipping is one of a kind? Or do you think you can be influenced and inspired by other industries that has the same dynamics playing out? I've never thought of that actually, but very, very superficially, since shipping is very volatile, I don't know, maybe I, I was going to say hotel business or airline business perhaps where you have seasonality and uh, yeah. you have, uh, let's say, oversupply or undersupply. But of course, in shipping, things can change much more quickly because within two or three years, uh, a lot of ships can be ordered and built and uh, the market can be flooded with too many ships. Now, I think shipping is quite unique. I don't think that there are direct similarities with any other industry that I at least know. When you make tough decisions, how much is data-driven? How, how much is gut feeling, given the experience you and your family have in the industry? Is well, it a combination, or do you feel like this is a data-driven industry and you need to understand no, the numbers? It's a combination. A combination. I think gut is very important, but you have to take gut uh, within the parameters of uh, numbers and reality. So you cannot ignore uh, the... The, the situation, how many ships there are, what season it is, how is consumption of oil moving, uh, you know, how, many, how much oil is on storage, etc. But gut is very important. Could you introdu introduce the company since it's yeah. on the, the stock exchange uh, uh, in, a, in a good way for people and maybe not too technical at the start so we can bring people along uh, discussing this company? 
Yeah, very briefly, uh, I'll tell you how we, we, we got to the point of starting the company. Uh, I mean, OET tankers, which was, uh, we came, went to public in 2012, uh, uh, 2018, sorry. Uh, something else started in 2012. Um, okay, we were in shipping since, uh, I said, tankers since, you know, the early 80s. And um, I, I had my own business, but I was also working with my father. Um, and what we did basically was follow, um, try to sell uh, ships at a high price and buy ships at a relatively low price. Uh, this was, uh, let's say, augmented by um, when technological changes were happening, which were usually driven for, ecolo for, for ecological reasons. For example, when I started tankers back in the early 80s. Uh, ships didn't have, of course, double hulls. They didn't even have segregated ballast tanks. And they had something that I, I think euphemistically was called clean ballast tanks, which meant that you could use certain cargo tanks where you would load crude to load ballast and you would discharge that ballast legally in the sea. I don't know, you were too young probably, but uh, maybe 20 years ago, if you remember, uh, some of our listeners remember, there was a lot of tar on the beaches, beaches which has now uh, almost disappeared. And that was because ships were actually discharging legally, you know, ballast uh, from tanks that had carried oil in the sea. So back, uh, so in the mid 80s, late 80s, this changed and the uh, ships which had clean ballast tanks were replaced by ships that had segregated ballast tanks, uh, which meant that ships had to be a little bit bigger so they could have more cubic capacity to have separate ballast tanks from cargo tanks. So that was one big st step that we followed. We sold, we sold quickly our CBT fleet and replaced it with segregated ballast fleet tank. Uh, then uh, the other big change, and when we got another opportunity to buy and sell ships was after the Exxon Valdez, um, um, it was decided that uh, single hull ships were for tankers were dangerous because a simple, let's say, a puncture of the hull would result in very substantial pollution, and ships changed to double hull. Again, at that time, we sold our segregated ballast tank ships, and we started from that time on. Uh, I guess early nineties, we started uh, uh, late eighties, early nineties. We started ordering our own ships, and since then. Uh, with very few exceptions, we haven't in, in the last 15 years we haven't bought any second-hand ships. We have built all all our fleet in specific yards. We we started building our ships in Japan at the time NKK. Today they are then they became JMU, the JMU, another universal. It's a it's a, a Hyundai uh, um, uh, IHI. Uh, which was a big shipyard, NKK and uh, Hitachi emerged and they've become now JMU. But uh, as the, the millennium changed, the uh, uh, Japanese yards started becoming too expensive and also they were not very flexible in, uh, in the designs they were producing, etc. So we slowly moved to Korea and now we build all our ships in Korea. So back in uh, uh, 2018, um, we, uh, I think actually we started 17 in the winter. Um, we were, uh, we, we knew of the IMO changes that were coming along with 2020 where fuels, the uh, fuel, fuel had from 2020 fuel has to be of, uh, very, uh, the content of sulfur in fuel has to be of very low. And uh, uh, we saw a big opportunity um, to expand a lot in ships that uh, are minimizing their consumption, thus minimizing also the um, uh, uh, CO2 that their emissions. Thank you. That uh, uh, obviously, when you burn this oil, you have much, 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 much
emissions. And what we, we also saw that uh, after 2015, in 2015, you got a first big effort, parenthesis. It wasn't really the first effort. The first effort took place in the early 80s, uh, late 70s, because at the time, most ships had tur turbine engines. And for example, if the LCC was burning 100 and 150 tons a day, what's it burns 40 a mountain ship. Um, and because of the oil crisis, when oil became very expensive, the turbines, which were very good, very efficient, simple engine, engines, were replaced by diesel engines, which is slow-speed diesel engines, what, which is what we have also today. So we had a big move for, for, for economizing consumption then. But after that, the, uh, there was a progressive move as engines were improving. And every year you could get a few grams per hour, per horsepower, less, one gram, two grams um, per horsepower. Uh, but the big, uh, the big change started happening in 2015, when you had the first generation of eco ships, which were burning significantly less fuel than all the ships. And then the second generation, which came after 2017, 2018, which were dramatically more efficient. And on top of that, of course, we had the big issue with scrubbers. Scrubber is a piece of equipment that basically uh, the, the emissions of, from the main engine go through a shower. Uh, of seawater, where the sulfur is separated from the from the from the rest of the emissions, and uh, um, um, thus uh, you can actually fill, you, uh, you 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 can actually uh, burn heavy sulfur fuel with super eco ships that are equipped also with scrubbers, and heavy sulfur fuel is much cheaper than lower sulfur fuel. Um, anyway, so. We saw this as an opportunity, and uh, of course, Norway. The, the big we 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 we, uh, we started speaking with Norwegian investment banks, and uh, we I always knew from the, my from the start of my shipping career that, and of course, I have followed it over the decades that uh, Norway is, is probably the most advanced uh, nation in the world sh shipping wise, and we felt that the investors in Norway would understand what we were talking about when we were talking about scrubbers and. IMO 2020, and we wouldn't have to explain everything from scratch um, to investors who were not familiar with shipping, like the Norwegian market was. So we decided to go to Norway, and uh, we successfully raised some equity. We contributed the ships we had, and we, we expanded our fleet, and uh, we've done quite well. Uh, as far as we are concerned, we're quite happy with our performance. So that's how it started. Uh, uh, and now we're in the axis, we're in the axis in, in, in the Oslo stock exchange axis, and uh, I think we'll probably move up very soon. We have all the uh, preconditions to do that. Um, but uh, yeah, of course, COVID came and changed everything. Uh, we had different plans for this year, but COVID, uh, we were going to sell some ships this year, which was something we had told our investors from, from day one. Um, um, and uh, um, we're still doing all right. Can you explain why, in your perspective, Norway is hotspot for shipping? Does this is it a combination of the Viking era, etc., and the right people and the right money, or is it coincidence because you have other nations like Portugal and other that also should be good in shipping based on their history? Why do you think Norway has that position? You think it has? Well, uh, uh, history is extremely important. And, uh, you know, whether it's Norway, Portugal or Greece, uh, historical factors have played a very important role in, in these countries having a close contact with the sea. Having said that, uh, for a number of reasons, I guess in some ways uh, there are some similarities between Greece and Norway. Both countries uh, were relatively poor compared with other neighbors or European countries uh, before the discovery of oil by Norway. And I guess a lot of, uh, a, a lot of people didn't have a lot of alternatives but to go to sea and to become merchants and to try to uh, expand their business uh, and, may, and succeed through shipping. So I think uh, uh, this together with the fact that conditions in Norway being in, in, in the North Sea and are very severe, uh, which means that the Norwegian uh, shipping naval people have to be 
historically very knowledgeable and experienced to survive. Um, when the opportunities came and oil was discovered, all this uh, uh, tradition um, enabled the Norwegian companies to develop a lot of expertise in all different kinds of shipping, including offshore exploration of shipping, exploration for oil. Today, the same thing goes for, um, you know, wind turbines that are being installed at sea, etc. And I think because of this, because shipping was a very important part of Norwegian life and because of the historical um, tradition that Norway had in shipping, I think this is the reason why it has developed so much. In other countries that are wealthier than Norway, or where now with oil, of course, not Norway is wealthy, but per capita, but bigger countries with much bigger populations, and they had also different, you could, you know, make ketchup and make money, or make uh, Heinz, uh, Tabasco, I've seen, I'm watching CNN these days with the uh, saga with the American elections, and they have this program for a hundred-year-old companies, and they said, for example, how the company that makes Tabasco was created, and this is a huge business. I mean, but this became a huge business because the United States was a, is a big country. We couldn't really make a, a, a Tabasco company in Greece with a small population or no we would start from there and export it everywhere else. So I think that the history plus uh, coincidences, like the fact that there was a lot of oil discovered in, in, um, in uh, uh, Norwegian waters, I think that this uh, helped... Uh, create a nation that's very uh, experienced and uh, very knowledgeable in shipping, like uh, Norway. I feel like... Also, like another, thing is, another thing is that Norway is also very transparent. Um, you know, institutions work in Norway, which is also extremely important for a business, to, for a business, for a country to flourish. You cannot have a country flourishing without the rule of law or the respect for the law. And Norway has that transparency in this respect, which is also extremely important. I agree. Uh, you talked a bit about sort of this green opportunity that we have seen in shipping now. We did the podcast with 2020 bulkers, etc. But from your perspective, how do you separate in business sort of this greenwashing? Because green trends come all the time, but there has to be some, ca some value to be captured. And how do you define a green opportunity market-wise? Because... Those are not the same always. Like we can talk about green yeah. trends a lot, but it doesn't mean it's a great business. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's a bit embarrassing when you are running a tanker fleet or a shipping fleet to talk about green. <laughs> because at the end of the day, you do burn oil and you do pollute. I mean, something that has to happen, of course, because moves, goods have to be moved. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, I think the, we're talking about minimizing the energy we use and thus minimizing emissions. And because uh, with global warming, the situation is deteriorating continuously and very, uh, the world has to take decisions to minimize this uh, development. I think uh, efficient, energy efficient ships, which I think is a, a fairer way of describing ships, although we call, of course, our company is called Oceanis Eco Tankers, which again is a euphemism in my opinion. But in any case, uh, energy efficient ships are becoming more and more important because of that because they emit less, uh, less the fact that we're burning less uh, oil. Agree. We, we had some a bit technical questions from Twitter. I just want to take them because one of the, the sender of them are a relative big shareholder in your company. So I think his Twitter name goes something like original Briler or something. But if you can start by describing the discount control mechanism, and then we can work our way from there. What is the concept? Oh. You know, as... as, uh, as uh... I said uh, previously, a very important element uh, in our strategy is to shell ships at the right time. So when the company was, uh, was uh, uh, conceived uh, and uh, started and uh, uh, we had our first board meeting, incidentally, uh, the board members, uh, the board owns like 78% of the company. Uh, we have... Uh, uh, three American directors who are from uh, uh, big funds and uh, uh, with a lot of experience in shipping. And uh, we take the, their view that this is extremely helpful for us because 
we uh, are not experienced, obviously, with uh, uh, public markets and having part of our board, uh, having top class people who have a completely different experience from us is extremely useful. So at that time, when the, we conceived the company, we had our first board meeting, we decided to have a mechanism by which if uh, prices fell, if our stock uh, price uh, fell um, and our NAV was much higher, we would sell ships and buy back our shares. Um, that's what the me mechanism is. Uh, this is, this is, we said that this would be effective after 21. And that is something, of course, uh, uh, by, by buying back shares, whether it's from sale of ships or whether it's from uh, uh, free cash flow that the company makes is, is always on our mind. Um, and it's a very difficult position, uh, decision. In any case, we have a special committee in our board that from January 21 will consider whether it's more profitable, uh, more advantageous for the company to sell ships uh, and buy back shares if it is feasible. Uh, and that's what the discount mechanism is. But, and thus try and uh, uh, buy back shares so that our share price uh, goes back to NAV. Now it's, uh, in my opinion, ridiculously low. It's significantly below NAV, even though we are making profits every quarter and uh, distributing dividends. Why is that, do you think, just to, if you say it's ridiculously think, uh, low? I, I, think, uh, I think that, uh, you know, I, I, I always believe that uh, in general in stocks, uh, all of us, all humans, uh, we have a herd mentality. Uh, when something is good, we all rush and buy things. And when it's bad, we all run away. Uh, and this goes also for including myself. Uh, this is our instinct. And that's one reason. The second reason is that shipping has, uh, has uh, been very, uh, it's a very dangerous investment for people who do not know shipping. There have been a lot of uh, instances where shipping companies have gone bankrupt and the investors have lost all their money. Uh, so I think, uh, understandably, people are very skeptical. Um, but the main, I think the main reason why we're, the share is low is because there's a herd mentality and because uh, with all COVID, uh, with all the uh, adventures we had with, uh, you know, oil wars, Russia, Saudi Arabia, excessive oil being produced, uh, oil tankers storing oil, all the uh, land uh, storage being full. Um, understandably, there's a lot of pessimism regarding Tankers. So, understandably, uh, people run away from tankers. Yeah, I think it's a mistake. I think it's a. I'm not saying this because it's our company. In fact, you know, the price of our share does not. It is not the most important factor for me because from the beginning, what we had said to even in the roadshow that we were doing is that our objective. We are investors, so our objective is to uh, distribute free cash flow as dividends and sell ships and distribute the. Uh, uh, free cash from the ships we sell as dividends, full stop. Uh, uh, in a, this has been a successful model, model for us for many decades. And uh, uh, that's the main thing we want to follow and we will follow now. And as I told you from the beginning, uh, uh, we, we were planning to sell five ships in 2021, specific ships, the oldest ships in the fleet. Uh, there were three ships built in 2015, which are the oldest ships built in the fleet. And then we had the ship building scene. 2016 and, two, and one in 2017, which are the second oldest uh, ships. And, um, and um, 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 we wanted to sell them and, and give back the equity to our shareholders. Unfortunately, COVID came along and this has postponed things. Parenthesis here, uh, we're extremely bullish uh, for, for tankers. Uh, we think that after uh, sometime after the summer of next year, um, things will start normalizing very rapidly. And because it's a very small order book uh, and a lot of uncertainty regarding propulsion, what fuels uh, will be used in the future, etc. Um, I, I think the order book will remain small. And at the same time, we have an aging fleet. And in tankers, an aging fleet uh, uh, is much more serious than in other sectors. A lot of oil terminals will not accept a ship that's over 15 years old. A lot of time charters will not time charter ships that are over 10 years old. And uh, 
a lot of uh, countries impose certain restrictions, uh, uh, environmental restrictions. So I think all the ships have a major handicap versus modern ships. And uh, this will also help uh, create an extremely fair market in the next one or two years. But just, so, just, just to emphasize your point, it's, it's kind of the same you see in the tech stocks. It's not like the valuation is fine, everyone can judge it, but it's kind of that herd mentality. So, but if yeah. you look at the metrics, it's unbelievable. Yeah, I think when you asked me, when you asked me earlier uh, whether there's an industry that's similar to shipping, one could say the stock market is the closest thing to shipping, where you know macro um, uh, elements determine to a great effect uh, what happens to the stock market, uh, together with uh, with of course micro development profits of companies and. Uh, uh, you know, day-to-day -day things that also propel prices. Yeah, it's something like that. I agree with you. And yeah. Just another question. I don't think you need to answer it that long, but in terms of the shareholders, it seems like you're very aligned even with the smallest investors as well. Is that a coincidence or no. is it? Yeah. Can you explain a bit no. the, the philosophy? We are shareholders. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so we want to maximize our, the returns on our, on our shares. Uh, we have by far the lowest management cost uh, compared to all our peers, significantly lower management costs. We, we run the business at break even as managers. We don't care to have a big fleet. We want to maximize our profits. And uh, that's the, 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 the absolute core of this business is make money operating ships and make money selling ships. And later perhaps consider uh, replacing the fleet with, with, privately or through another entity or even through a canis. But uh, this is the, 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 the thing is buy, sell, operate and make profits. So this, is, uh, this is the sole purpose of our business. It's not be big or be good or be better or bigger or whatever. We run a very good operation. We also, you know, we're very we love our charters and our charters love us because we, we are good to them and they're good to us. We have first class ships, of course, they're very young ships and we, we have a very high quality management uh, as well. Uh, yeah, this is it. You compared shipping with the stock market. Then the biggest question that it's very hard to answer is how do you separate luck and skill? Because you can't uh -huh. be lucky in many years. Okay. You can't? <laughs> you can, uh, you can, uh, okay. Without luck, it's extremely difficult to do, I think, extremely well. Uh, but it's also extremely difficult to do extremely well without skill. So it has to be a combination. I think uh, being skillful, for example, I think we, if we had not seen the fact that uh, technologically ships were changing and that uh, with IMO 2020, all the ships would become much less competitive. And when I'm talking about all the ships, I'm, I mean ships between 2012, 2011, I'm not talking about 20-year-old ships, I'm talking about 80-year-old ships or 70-year-old ships. Uh, if we hadn't perceived that, which we perceived because we, we, we follow our business and we, we live it day to day, um, we would not have done what we did. But we, we were also lucky that, uh, let, let's say, we were in a situation where we had a relatively small fleet uh, back in the mid-2010s, uh, uh, which we sold and we had the opportunity to renew the whole fleet effectively. Now, if we were... If we had 50 ships or 30 ships in our hands in 2015-16, um, we wouldn't have the opportunity to create such a modern, um, um, efficient fleet. Uh, and that's, that, that's luck. Uh, because we didn't, when we had fewer ships in 2015, it was not because we thought that IMO would come along in 2020 and change the fuel and everything else. And uh, it was just that... Uh, we had found opportunities to sell ships and we had sold the, sh the fleet out without seeing the macro elements being so attractive as to go and order a lot of ships. Yeah. But I feel also the best are very good at taking advantage of macro situations and making their own luck, right? I don't feel like... Yeah, uh, you, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's at least my point. I, I wanted to, to just talk a bit about macro as well. Can you take us back to 2007, 2008? Because when I uh, studied business, Greece was a perfect example of how not to run a government. Can you take us back to 2008 and explain, yeah. since you lived what there? Happened, what happened in Greece, you mean? 
Yes. About Greece? Yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> it's a very sad story. Um, Agree. Greece, uh, our financings were okay until 2004, 2005, 2006. And in fact, Greece was growing and we had a very good growth in our GDP. Wages were rising, were going up, which was extremely positive. Uh, unemployment was extremely low and everybody was very happy. But unfortunately, we got a government that, uh, although they, they, a conservative government, and they had, whilst promising all the right things about their fiscal policy and the measures that we were planning to take to keep the economy going and have a healthy economy, they did the opposite. They, they hired a, a, a very large number of civil servants. They wasted money. So when Lehman Brothers came and... Um, 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 countries that had huge debts uh, were and huge deficits were hit very hard and unfortunately after let's say four or five years of, uh, of three or four years of that government uh, our debt had swollen and uh, we were running also a very big deficit so this combined with the world recession and the financial crisis results in, in effectively Greece going bankrupt um, um, this was a very, very difficult uh, situation, of course. A lot of money lost, a lot of people lost all their, 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 their wealth. Uh, wages came down dramatically. So unfortunately, say, uh, you know, the min minimum wage in Greece now is something like seven, eight hundred euros a month. Uh, at the time, it was more like 1,200 uh, euros, you know, 10 years ago. Um, effectively um you know everything uh, a lot of a lot of the, the biggest disaster that happened was that a lot of educated we have quite an educated uh, were educated in greece and a lot of our greeks were educated left and went abroad to work as in businesses as doctors as uh, you know banks and which was a huge brain drain and that's something that's the most difficult thing to 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 although some Greeks are coming back now to 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 correct because there's a lot of uh, educated capable Greeks with experience in business that or in a science that have left and are working abroad and how do you get them back especially when still wages are low here um, yeah but the, but, but the, uh, the, narr the narrative that I was taught in Norway. I don't think it's necessarily the right one, but I'm just like collecting memories in my head. It was that in Greece you expect to retire when you're like 50 years old. Is that totally off, or how's the culture component in that piece? Yeah, and yeah, you're right. I mean, the, the, this uh, the, the 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 seeds of this crisis uh, of the bankruptcy of Greece was, were were um, laid uh, in, in the 80s when we had a socialist, uh, extremely populist government, um, which uh, effectively taught Greeks and that uh, um, the government is obligated to pay for everybody. Uh, you don't have to work to get paid. Um, corruption creeped in as well uh, in that period, in the 80s. Uh, and Greece and Greek society changed. Uh, one of the one of the problems and one of the reasons why, in the 2000s, when the economy collapsed, we had such huge deficits, was that we had an extremely expensive retirement program and pension program, um, and there were a lot of very privileged sectors, unions, especially uh, unions that were very powerful, like, uh, for example, the Public Power Corporation. Um, um, they were retiring, I don't know whether it was 50, maybe it was 55 or 57. Women, I mean, mothers were, could retire when they were, let's say something like 42, 45, because they were mothers, of course, it didn't make a lot of sense because at 42, 45, your children are usually older. So why do you get the benefit there? But anyway, this was populism. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, and uh, this, what, what you said about uh, um, Greece being inefficient and uh, people getting pensions very young is absolutely true. I'll just give you one example uh, to understand. Uh, this is not exactly, uh, it's also relating to, of 
opposed to, to the age people retire. But uh, I know somebody who's running a, a TV station and his father uh, um, uh, was an officer in the Greek army. He fought the Second World War against uh, Italy. Then he fought against Germany. Then he went to Egypt and continued fighting with the Allies after Greece was occupied by the Germans. And he came back. Uh, we had um, a communist uh, upheaval in Greece, uh, sponsored and, uh, by the Soviet Union. So we had a civil war for three or four years. He fought in the civil war. Then he was sent to Korea. He fought in Korea. <laughs> he, he, then became, he finally became the head of the Greek army, um, the chief of staff uh, of the Greek army. And then, he, of course, at some point, he, he retired. Now, my friend was working at the state um, post office, uh, and he had a clerk who had retired. Uh, the pension that he got, the clerk, his driver, and he was, it was his driver, was four and a half thousand euros a month, whereas the general got two and a half thousand euros a month. And the, uh, and the post office, because they had a strong union and uh, they, they got very good terms, they could retire them at 45, 47. Uh, whilst the general, of course, retired a little bit later. Of course, the officers retire relatively young, not necessarily, of course, the general. Uh, so this was it. It was a very twisted uh, and unfair uh, system that had prevailed in Greece. A lot of the entrepreneurs today, and it goes for myself, are like born global. They doesn't really care where they live. They just want to build stuff if they're interested in entrepreneurship and business. What would they typically find in Greece if you say it's like... Some people left Greece. Does that mean it's a great opportunity or does it mean it's very hard to build stuff in Greece? How does that component look in your head? Again, uh, because of populism and the socialist governments we had in the past, uh, business, Greece is not a very business-friendly nation, although this is changing quite quickly now. Um, uh, um, there are opportunities in Greece because uh, uh, there are a lot of gaps in Greece, um, from real estate to tourism and from tourism to, for example, Tesla is making an investment here, Microsoft is making a, a big investment in Greece now. Uh, there's a lot of virgin ground or uh, there's a lot of room for development in Greece. Uh, I don't know. But, 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 high, but yeah, but basically, it's not like a, it's not heaven for entrepreneurs. No, have, it's not like Ireland. Let's do it this way. <laughs> Time is going fast. I just have a couple of more questions. I don't know. You can decide which one you want to answer. But we we have to touch a bit upon the history. You, there have been some yeah. smart people, philosophers in Greece. Can you just talk about your favorite people from Greece, even if it's philosophy and stoicism? Because you have some trends in the world that. A lot of those ideas that were born there are coming to life again in like the civilization. Okay. Uh, modern Greece uh, is, a, is a mirage from ancient Greece. Uh, um, more, modern Greece exists because of ancient Greece. Because, you know, nations didn't exist two, three hundred years ago. It was mainly kings and... Uh, and lords and, uh, and princes who who, who owned the, 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 the land. Uh, and there were just people working the land. And, uh, you know, European history, middle classes developed, et cetera, et cetera. And we had, then we had eventually uh, democracy. Now, um, so everything is based on ancient Greece. And had it not been uh, for ancient Greece, uh, uh, if you look at Greek history, Greece uh, effectively um, ceased to exist a few centuries after the Romans uh, took over Greece. And then, of course, the Eastern Roman Empire, which became the Byzantine Empire, effectively was Greece. And uh, it, it, the Greek language was spoken there in Byzantium. And... Um, mm, uh, the, East, the Byzantium was a Christian um, um, empire and uh, um, using the Greek language. So when the Turks uh, took over Greece and other areas, they, they reached Vienna in, in, in Austria and parts of Hungary, etc. 
the whole Balkans. Uh, they they um, 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 uh, Greece survived because of uh, of uh, um, the language, which was a church language. So if you, if you had to be an educated Greek, an educated person in this part of the world, your only choice would be uh, learning the Greek language through the church. So effectively, the Greek language and the Christianity kept, um, Greece wasn't Greece at the time, so it's difficult to say, yeah. kept uh, society, let's say, connected. Exactly. And um, so in this respect, uh, we owe everything to, to ancient Greece. And of course, uh, democracy and uh, philosophy and... Uh, ethics, etc., were part of the ancient Greek philosophy. And since modern Greece is a mirage from ancient Greece, and not necessarily a good mirage, um, um, a lot of these elements were taken here. Agree. Just one quick final question, Janis. It's been great talking to you. What do you say to people when they ask you, uh, what is your best advice to succeed in business or shipping? Do you say, figure it out yourself, it's your own journey, or do you say, do X, Y, C? Work hard, like everything else, I guess. Uh, have a lot of imagination. And, uh, you know, believe that you can achieve almost everything, whether you have money or not, in shipping. But you have to be clever and, and lucky, as we said. Work hard, be clever, and have some luck. Perfect ending. Thank you so much for taking the time. Pleasure. Hi, everyone. Christopher here again. Just a few things before you leave the show. If you liked this episode, it would be great if you could give it a review and also share it with your professional network. If you want to get in touch with me, Twitter is the place. Just go to at Chris Wunheim. You can also find this information in the show notes. Hope to see you tune in to the next episode and take care.